and welcome to today's episode of PropCast in association with Property Week. I'm Andrew Teacher from Montford and I'm joined today by Helen Lord, who's CEO of the Vulnerability Registration Service, a not-for-profit that supports vulnerable individuals, and by Peter Jackson, who's Chief Data and Technology Officer at Outra, a data science business. Helen, let's start with you. Thank you very much for coming in. Now, just for anybody that hasn't seen some of the press coverage over the last couple of months, you, the VRS, have come together with Altra and you've run a load of deep analysis on lots of new data. And that essentially shows as nearly 2.5 million UK households categorised at high risk of vulnerability. Just so we can kind of get going, what do you class as vulnerable? What actually constitutes being vulnerable in terms of the data and in terms of what your organisation does? Okay, so we look at financial vulnerability, so people who are struggling, particularly in light of the cost of living crisis at the moment, but who are in debt and in that debt spiral. But what we try and do is put some context around that financial difficulty. So we look at things like life events where somebody may be going through a relationship breakdown or a bereavement. We look at aspects of health, whether that's physical or mental health. And we look at accessibility as well. So it's putting a broader view of vulnerability, not just focusing on the financial side of things. And that's a critical thing, isn't it, Helen? Because obviously we've had data on people's financial situations for a long time, but that ability to add context to it and understand why something has happened, that enables those different actors to make appropriate changes, right? Whether that might be a utilities business, a landlord, a gaming company that someone might have a betting problem. So all of these indicators enable you to actually drive change, right? Yeah, and it enables you to treat people in the right way. So financial lives, you can look at it in a very one-dimensional way, but there are things that create financial vulnerability and there are things that financial vulnerability causes. So if somebody, for example, is going through a difficult life event, you adapt the way you manage them, you adapt the way you collect debt, you put allowances in place and you speak to people differently. So that's really never been done before. And the Vulnerability Registration Service, the VRS, it's a not-for-profit and you work both with consumers, enabling them to register on the VRS website, enabling them to give you their information and you also work alongside regulators, different sorts of organisations, helping them help customers. Yes, that's right. So it's very much a one-stop shop for consumers. It's a way of them highlighting to their service providers that they are in those circumstances. Equally, we try and use that information on those individuals to start to help them, to enable them to see a light at the end of the tunnel. There are lots of routes for getting support. It's not always easily obvious how you actually access that support. Yeah, it's a good point. Peter Jackson, let's come to you. So many people in the data world, many people in the property world will know you as being one of the great global czars of big data. Before we get into Outra, can you explain to me what big data is? Because people hear these phrases, they get wielded around all over the show, but to some people it's a bit meaningless. What does big data mean and what's your role, what's Outra's role in helping us understand what vulnerability looks like? 
Great question, because I don't actually like the phrase big data, because I think it has been banded around and misunderstood a huge amount. But big data to me means very large data sets, but more than just being large, varied data sets. So bringing together data sets that you wouldn't normally imagine would work together well, putting them together, and then drawing the insights of the relationships between not just one or two data sets, but many, many data sets. This isn't just an Excel sheet with a couple of columns on it. We're talking gallons of data that's far too complex for a single human brain to handle. We're talking about billions of rows of data. And in terms of Outra's business, Outra's a data science company. What does that mean? What's Outra's purpose? What makes it different? And what are you trying to achieve? Our purpose is to try and predict household behaviour. In other words, how households will behave in the consumer market. And that's everything from a house, rental or purchase, to selling that house, buying that house, moving, but also into the direct-to-customer market as well, so consumer goods as well. And we collect data around households, not around individuals, around households, to try and build a picture of the households to predict what their behaviour will be. And how do you ensure that you operate on the right side of GDPR? Because that's obviously a big barrier now to some areas of data innovation in the UK and in Europe. It doesn't quite work the same way in the States. But how do you ensure that everything you're doing is on the right side of the rules? We don't collect any personally identifiable information. So we don't collect names, we don't collect email addresses, we don't collect phone numbers, we don't collect anything around gender or religious belief or political leanings. So we don't collect any PII, as you would call it. So we stay the right side of GDPR. We base all of our data on the house. But I think more important than GDPR is ethics. And ethics around artificial intelligence and data science is becoming a big topic across the world. And we are very clear that we will always be ethical with our data. And that, for us, is why our relationship with VRS is really important. We think it's ethical. This is the right thing to do. And Helen Lord, in terms of how different financial organisations and other businesses interact with consumers... Is it that they don't understand a customer's vulnerability or is it simply that they don't have the information or aren't able to understand? Or is it a bit of both, I'm guessing, in certain situations? It's a little bit of both. So some organisations may have had a customer volunteer to them that they're in vulnerable circumstances, but that can easily sit within that organisation in a silo and not be shared elsewhere. Our point really is, If they are vulnerable, it's going to be relevant to their bank, their mobile phone company, their utility providers, and the list goes on. So why put the onus on those individuals to have to repeatedly share that information? If they've told their bank or their energy provider, it's probably relevant to the other one. So if they want that information shared, then let's enable them to do that and let's make life easier for them. And what are the ways in which we can do that? Because I guess at the minute, as a consumer, you might deal with your phone provider, you might deal with your Wi-Fi, your internet provider, you might deal with your landlord. And you might say, look, I can't afford to pay this, I've lost my job or I'm in difficulty, whatever it is. How do you enable that chain to be created so that if I'm dealing with Barclays, HSBC, or with an insurance business, I'm paying a premium for my house or my car, how do we enable that chain to be created so that I've said, yes, you can have my data? How do I enable 
everybody else to be in the loop, so to speak. It's simple. And that's exactly what VRS is fundamentally about. It's a cross-sector central service for sharing vulnerability data. So if you tell your bank, then hopefully we can then communicate that to your mobile phone provider, if appropriate. And in terms of this data set that you've put together with Ultra, what is that telling us that we didn't previously know? What we're doing is injecting a element of unique data around vulnerability into the already powerful data sets that ATRA have. So it's absolutely unique what we're doing. There is no way currently of looking at the potential for vulnerability out there. And I think this is the first step, and it's certainly the first step to using our vulnerability data in a predictive model. Mm. And in terms, I suppose, of where things are economically and socially at the minute, Peter Jackson, this has never been more vital, has it? I think it's absolutely vital. We've seen that the cost of living crisis, which started last summer, beginning to impact households, interest rates going up, rentals going up, inflation remaining stubbornly high. I think households are struggling. But I think what is really interesting is being able to predict those households that might move into financial difficulty and getting ahead of the game. And how are you able to do that? Because you've said you don't collect personal data. Can you explain to me how having household data enables you to be predictive in such a detailed way? Because what you're saying is it's quite a challenging, quite difficult thing. I don't think it's ever really been done before. I don't think it's been done before. You said that I've had a wide-ranging career in data. I've never seen anything like this before, which is why it excites me so much. When you consider that we have over 2,500 data points on every household in Britain, we then start... So give, m- us, give us a few of those. No, we haven't got time for 2,500. But give me five, one, five points that you might not think... Could be harvested. Starting point is around the house itself. In other words, whether it's a flat, a bungalow, a semi-detached house, where it's got four bedrooms, five bedrooms, one bedroom. What its EPC rating is, its energy rating. Energy performance. Yeah. How leaky it is. Because that's normally a big indicator of how well-maintained the property is. And that is, for us, a signal around perhaps households that are struggling to maintain their property. But you'd probably have to include all rentals in that, wouldn't you? (laughs) Yes, indeed. And then we have other small socio-demographic signals around sort of number of occupants of the house, employment types of the house, perhaps their social media preferences, those sorts of things. So when you put all of those together, what you're looking for is what we call signal signal around what might tell us about vulnerability in this case. And that's where the data science comes in, because essentially what you're doing, you're not just mixing all of this stuff together in one big pot. You're creating quite complicated and specific algorithms, which essentially uh, weight certain indicators and certain signals, as you described, and they will conclude that, okay, if 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2 is here, then that equals X. Absolutely right. And that's why it's so exciting to work with the VRS and get this unique data set, because that gives us very strong signal. It's real world observations. It's households saying we are vulnerable. So now we have a really strong signal that we can put into those algorithms to help us get even more accurate and predictive. And that's a big part of it, isn't it, Helen? It is that journey that we're on to make decision making clearer by having more actionable analytics at our fingertips. And that's only going to happen if we've got more actors in this whole arena working together. And by actors, I mean the regulators, the service providers, the banks, and other consumer groups. And part of your background was experience, wasn't it? And you've worked a long time in credit referencing, so you understand what goes on under the bonnet 
of many of these organizations. What more do you think they could be doing to help this whole process and the loop creating that we need to do? I think you've hit the nail on the head, really. This is all about collaboration. It's public sector, private sector collaboration. When we're talking about a cost of living crisis, when we're talking about a huge, massive problem, and it's not going to be resolved by individual organisations going down their own route and managing vulnerability in a very localised way. It needs the force of a lot of organisations that includes regulators, it includes public sector, it includes private sector, starting to work together and starting to bring that power behind it to start to address the whole issue of vulnerability. And obviously for many people when it comes to social care, when it comes to their engagement on many issues, their first port of call will be the local authority and councils clearly are as hard pressed as any organisation or service right now for their own funding. But what would you like local authorities, what would you like local government to do to support this shift to help vulnerable households and to make that data sharing and collaboration that's needed happen? Well, it's twofold. So we work with a number of local authorities around data sharing. They identify vulnerability in their residents. They hold data around people who have court protection orders, who are lacking the mental capacity to manage their own affairs. They share that data with us. They also have adult care and they have various departments where they can identify vulnerability. They should be sharing that data with us for a wider audience because it's going to be relevant to energy companies it's going to be relevant to housing and the flip side of it is that they are also collecting debt they're collecting debt around council tax they're collecting debt around housing so they need to know which of their residents are vulnerable to manage that collection activity in the right way and there isn't some sort of massive fear around sharing data with local authorities that can be managed really well is there a fear because everyone's been reading about GDPR for years now and it's been one of these things you know when you phone up as a consumer and you say to them can my wife deal with this and say no GDPR says no and all of this sort of nonsense that you get if you want to move a hospital appointment it's always you know we've all had that right we've all phoned up some hospital or some doctor surgery and certainly maybe it's just me that I'm a bit lazy and get my wife to do all this sort of stuff but you often get told computer says no because of data protection right we've all been there yeah and while privacy is massively important it can also act as a barrier and it is a fear that organisations have. We can't share data about vulnerable people, so we won't do anything with it. Those barriers need to be overcome. There are legal bases for sharing data. There's justifications for it. It just needs to be very much done in the right way. And Peter Jackson, what's the role here for different charities? Because clearly there are many groups that have an interest in understanding what goes on within households and we'll come on to some of the commercial uses in a minute in terms of how marketeers can use this but just focusing on your work with the VRS what should the role be for charities particularly given the problems we've got in this country about an aging population an obesity crisis we've got hundreds of thousands millions of people with type 2 diabetes and these are all problems that are storing up cost for the NHS, for the, whatever the future government looks like in a couple of years' time. And these are things that we can be dealing with now through prevention. I think that charities are sitting on a gold mine of data. The data that they have registered of people who've registered with them with those particular conditions, that they're going to those charities for help and support. And I think bringing those data sets together 
is when they become really powerful and sharing them. And as Helen says, there are ways of sharing data. GDPR does have provision for sharing of data, either through clear and explicit consent or through lawful necessity. So I think charities have a big role to play in this and mobilising those charities is very important, not only for the sort of work we're doing, but for the NHS as well, quite rightly. And give us an example of what you might be able to do. So if we're thinking about charities that deal, for example, with dementia, are you able to identify, for example, where there might be at-risk groups and what might happen to them? How would you be able to slice the data sets that Altra has to make it easier for people that have maybe got relatives that have got some kind of ailment to ensure that they're not falling into any sort of vulnerability trap. A very simple example really is like with the VRS, if we can get hold of a data set that has strong signal in it, we can then model that. And we can model it across 30.1 million households in the UK. The use of that then, the actionable part of that, and I love the way you used that phrase earlier on, actionable data, is that, for example, the NHS or local authorities could target resources into the right place, into the right areas. So rather than doing what essentially we do at the minute in the UK, which is channel our money through hospitals and hope for the best, actually this could support a more targeted approach, spending money that we have a lot less of it now than we used to, but that means that we're able to better target funding to those pain points, so to speak. Yeah, data can be very revealing and can show you and help direct that activity and investment. And Helen Lord, in terms of the conversations that you've been having with different groups and companies, which sorts of businesses are starting now to come to you? Because I know there's obviously been a lot in the news in recent months around utilities providers, water companies have been in the crosshairs, gaming companies, the betting industry has long been the poster child for creating problems and not mopping them up. But I hear that you're currently in talks with one of the big betting providers about supporting their movement and supporting their own help for customers? Yeah, so it's important in the online gaming world to be able to identify vulnerability and we are working with a big provider and some smaller providers and we do have a presence in that area and certainly the Gambling Commission is making very clear what it expects organisations to do around that area so we can flag vulnerability and they can put that into their process at the appropriate point. More widely we have a presence pretty much in every sector to a greater or lesser degree. There are influences around that from a regulatory point of view, particularly in financial services, and we're seeing activity hotting up there currently. And again, in the energy world, I think one of the areas I'd really like to broaden out in is telcos and mobile phone and broadband providers, because I think they have a closer, more engaged audience. And I think that would be hugely valuable to other sectors as well because they've got such deep wells of data you could use that to help other people basically yes and realistically i think we probably all prioritize paying our mobile phone bill above everything else so that customer disappearing into debt and being difficult to engage with isn't so much of a problem always yeah and in terms of your partnership with outra you've essentially said that was there's two and a half million 
households at a high risk. You've classified it as high risk. There's 8.7 million households that have just been described as vulnerable. What's the difference between high risk and vulnerable? Because these are huge numbers. Yes, there are. And it's difficult with vulnerability because it's changeable, it evolves, it's different day to day. It's quite a woolly subject and organisations struggle really to define what it is. But if I give you an idea of when we did a survey at the end of last year, 10% of those people were suggesting that they were either at risk of homelessness, eviction or repossession. Now, to me, that is high risk. They are worried if they're going to have a roof over their head and that is going to be more important than worrying about if they're going to be paying their water bill or the gas or electricity bill. Quite, quite. And Peter, this coincides, doesn't it, with quite a big new piece of, it's not really regulation, is it, from the Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA's consumer duty that's just been launched. Can you explain what that is? What does it mean? Does it have any teeth? As I understand it, it means that financial services organisations should only be marketing appropriate products to appropriate people. But that's always been the rule, hasn't it? That's kind of what the FCA is there for, right? To stop dodgy marketing of financial products. There's obviously a whole podcast series on how effective that's been, but it sounds like a a rehash of what their core principle is. I think it kind of formalises it more into the initial marketing contact or upsell opportunities that financial services organisations may have. Obviously, they're always looking to get more share of wallet and to extend their reach into the consumer base. And I think that that formalises this duty of care, whereas before it might have been a bit of a code of conduct. I think now it's formalises a duty of care. Now, whether it has any teeth, we'll have to wait and see. And I think that it will only be the first few test cases that tells us whether this is effective or not. And what happens if they're naughty? Well, I think that the avenues available to the regulator are fining. But I think as with GDPR, one of the biggest fears for the bigger institutions is reputational damage. Tell us a bit about your background, because you've been in a number of high-profile roles, hence your position in the data world. You've worked in regulation, you've worked in large institutions like legal in general. How has your experience played into what you do now and how have things changed over the years? I'm old enough to have seen a huge change in the way people use and value data and how they perceive they can leverage value and insight from it. I always say the change is getting faster and faster. Now, what is happening this year is happening at a faster pace than last year. And that's a mix between people's imaginations and creativity. It's a mix between technology as well. Can technology keep up with it? And I think that organisations are now looking for three things. And I was talking to the Chief Data Officer of IBM last week, and there's three things he and I completely agree on. Data is all about customer satisfaction. It's all about increasing customer wallet and customer care. It's about revenue. The second thing is it's about operational efficiency. Can organisations operate more efficiently? And the third thing is about regulation. In other words, providing data to regulators to show that you are clean and on the right side of the law. And those are the three uses of data. What I have seen is all organisations are now embracing all three or certainly one or two of those and they're fundamentally important. And if we were to flip on its head the work that you've done with the VRS understanding household vulnerability, how could that stuff be commercialised with marketeers? And what's Altra's data science team bringing to the table to support marketeers that they can't already get and they can't already use with existing platforms? 
I think the project that we've done with VRS and the piece of work we're on shows the power of real-world data that enables us to bring what I would call hyper-personalization to those households. You really begin to understand, as Helen quite rightly said, the colour around those houses, the subjectivity. It's not just a bland credit score or a bland three-bedroom house. You start to build some real detail and personalization around those houses. Now, marketeers love hyper-personalization. So in terms of a financial services company with the project that we've done with VRS, they can really now begin to understand their customer situation. Are they at risk of financial vulnerability? Where do they sit on that scale? Is this the right product for those people? Or should it be another product? Or how should they communicate with them? What should the messaging be? What should the messaging type be? So I think that marketeers kind of love this data. Some will be cautious around the ethics involved. Some will be cautious about bringing in data sets and having stuff that is hyper-personalized. So what assurances can you give if I'm coming to you from a big FMCG brand, if I'm coming to you from a big media brand, and I've got a reputation to uphold, I've got a boss above me that doesn't have the first clue about data science, what assurances are you able to give to me as that global marketing director that what you're going to sell me is not going to get me in trouble with the EU. You've really got me going my specialist topic now. It's a thing called data governance. And that's what it comes down to. Good data science is based on really good data governance. In other words, you have to understand where your data has come from, how you've sourced it, what you've done with it, how you've transformed it, how you've glued it together. Your algorithms must be transparent and explainable. In other words, they're not just black boxes. And then a key thing called data lineage. So if we output a data point at one end, we can trace that data point right the way across all of our transformation, storage and processing, right way to the point that it's come from. So essentially the supply chain of data, understanding where something's come from. And Helen, just to draw things to a close, Peter's obviously the king of governance, but I'm keen to ask you about governments. What should ministers be doing to help make this happen and faster and get a better understanding because it strikes me that there's loads of different areas that we've brushed on today from water companies to landlords and property companies housing associations perhaps local authorities betting gaming companies and all of these different organizations sit in different ministries there's no central well i'm sure there is a central data unit still in government but what do you need ministers in different areas to do and what should some of those conversations look like particularly as we move towards party conference and manifesto season, you have a high probability of some sort of government change in a year or so's time. It needs some overarching, cohesive plan. So that brings together many different government departments. Now, clearly, they are all going to have their separate priorities. But above that, there should be a plan in terms of supporting vulnerable people. And that involves data sharing. It can't develop and we can't resolve things quickly enough if each regulator, each department, each organisation is pursuing only their own set of priorities and ticking the boxes in terms of regulation. It needs to be broader than that. And just looking ahead, Peter Jackson, you know, as we move towards manifesto season and next year's election campaign, clearly the conversation around inflation is going to hot up. The conversation on interest rates is only going to get more taut as more people get affected by rising mortgage costs and other things connected with that. What do you see the future looking at? Open the crystal ball 
tell us what the data's saying, tell us what the data's not saying, tell us what the data's not going to ever be able to say. <laughs> I think the data in this situation can tell you lots of things. For example, the impact on workplace pensions. As people struggle to make ends meet, as they struggle to pay their mobile phone bill, which might be a priority, as they struggle to pay their other utility bills or their mortgage or their rent, they may flip out of their pension scheme. They may stop making contributions to their monthly pension scheme. Or if they're over 55, they may draw down early from their pension scheme. And that then is a very dark crystal ball because that is pushing the cost of living crisis down into future generations. And what does that mean in practice? So you think there's a real risk that people could essentially stop paying into their pensions because they've got a lack of spare cash, basically. Yes, if people can see that if they're struggling to pay their bills at the end of the month and by flipping out of their workplace pension, they can take home an extra 150 or £200 at the end of the month, I think it's a risk. And that's just storing up problems for later. Indeed. And do you think governments are hearing this? Do you think that's something that people recognise right now or people just not focused on it? I think with many of these things, and I think echoing a little bit what Helen was saying, to us it seems frustratingly slow. And I think that to solve these problems requires real leadership. Mm. And that predictive element you touched on earlier, that's a critical point here. So, Peter Jackson, how are you able to be so predictive, but yet also remain not just inside the rules and regulations, but remain inside the ethics that you were talking about a bit earlier on? The quality of our predictions is obviously vitally important to us. So we're monitoring the performance of our models and our predictions the whole time. If we predict something, we then collect real-world occurrences to test against, to see how accurate we were and see how we can improve those algorithms. So we are constantly feeding back from real-world observations into our predictions to make them more accurate and tune the models accordingly. The other thing about being inside the right side of the law and also balancing the quality of the predictions is bias, bias of training sets. We have to make sure that our training sets are representative of the demographic or the community or the group that we are modelling from to make those predictions about. And ethics, I think, is something that is core to every exec, core to every data scientist and data engineer, and isn't new just because of AI and machine learning. It's something that should be a core business value. Mm. And that's obviously in addition to the statutory rules and legislation Indeed. that's in place. Yeah. Helen, just to bring things to a close, anybody listening to this, how should they get in touch with the VRS. If I'm a consumer and I'm possibly at risk or I feel one of my parents or my siblings are at risk, what do I do? Where do I go? And similarly, if I work for a financial institution that could be working with you, where do I go? What do I do? It's quite simply through our website, which is the vulnerabilityregistrationservice.co.uk. And organisations can get in touch with us and individuals can register with us through that. Fantastic stuff. Well, look, it's great to have you on. Helen Lord from the VRS, Peter Jackson from Outra. I've been Andrew Teacher. This has been Propcast in association with Property Week. And if you'd like to subscribe, please do head to Apple, to Spotify, to Amazon, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts from. And also don't forget to check out the Resi 360 conference in September 12th to the 13th of September in London. Go to resiconf.com. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again very, very soon. Thank you very much.